though. Let's talk shop. We should introduce ourselves. I am Nathan Koskovich in Atlanta, Georgia. And I am David Rader in Lowell, Massachusetts. And we went to Georgia Tech together as architecture students. Yes, we did. Yes. So um, that's everybody knows everything they need to know about us now. Pretty much. <laughs> um, pretty much. Um, we've been, um, I've been doing a series of podcasts with architects and designers and things come up. So I wanted to do a series to go along with that, which was um, talking about some of the uh, key buildings and architects that get referenced so people have a frame of reference okay yeah and i thought we'd have a, a second person to talk to me so i wouldn't sound like a crazy person um so um center to an architect or any designer's job is solving complex problems it's not possible to solve these problems through analytical methods so architects have come up with multiple subjective or intuitive ways of solving problems one of which is to simply draw an experience well, in the past, in a similar situation, this work, let's try it again and see what happens. Does that, that match your experience? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> um, where experience fails, architects can fall back on precedence. The work of others in similar situations throughout the centuries, architects find themselves over and over again going back to certain buildings by certain architects. These architects and these works form a set of building blocks from which each architect can build his or her own design philosophy yeah thoughts David? yeah i think that's very true i think any building that you study or visit anything that you've seen um when you get into a design problem you end up recalling oh this worked here this this was a way to achieve that goal or you know solve that problem yeah. kind of thing yeah and some of them become kind of so prevalent that they just you shorthand exists for them. Like, right. Um, you, you just hear people refer to stuff as Miesian or Wrightian or it's a very Bauhaus. Right. So, or brutalist uh, or, you know, right. Classical, that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's, we all, we all kind of know what that means, but um, it uh, is kind of opaque to people who don't uh, do this all the time. Right. So in other words, so, so that's what we're going to do to help people understand that vocabulary uh, undertake this special subseries where we look at um, different architects, and I don't know how often we'll do it. We'll do it as often as our busy schedules will let us do it. Um, but I put together an initial list, which I shared with yeah, you, David. Which um, I tried to just do the highlights, and it ended up being about fifty-eight kind of buildings that take us from uh, the Panthenon to, or I'm sorry, the Parthenon. Mm -hmm. We'll learn the difference of that, I'm sure, at some yeah. point to the Guggenheim Bilbao kind of as a straight line as far as like the most essential things that I think you need to know um, or and I'm sure people will have their opinions and add to it yeah yeah um, and I, I try to pick buildings that uh, you and I have been to because you and I did the um, Paris study abroad program and I did uh, uh, where we lived in Paris for a year as roommates as much as we remember most of it. Yeah, which was an excellent experience. Oh, yeah. And um, I did a, a summer in uh, Italy, and then you living in Boston and me living in Atlanta, I think we can cover most of the of the architects on here. And there are a couple of 
rare readings. Yeah, and seeing in person is just really important because um, it just totally changes your view of a building. Like I wasn't a big Corbusier fan until I saw some of his buildings in person, and then they were much cooler than I thought they were as pictures or drawings. Yeah, and that's something like in a book you can't explain how he was trying to frame views and things like that until you actually were in the space and you could actually look and see what he was directing your view to and the surroundings and that yeah. kind of stuff. Like you had no idea until you visit the site. Yeah. And sometimes you don't really understand or get a sense of what the space is like. The drawings do give you a sense, but they can be remarkably different when you finally get there and see them when they want you expect. Yeah. Especially considering the whole movement of modernism was kind of this, minimalist space that you it was almost kind of the bare essential of what you needed and then when you go visit the space yeah. it's not it's not sparse you know it, there's there's depth to it there's layers there's things going on that you just can't get from studying the plans and elevations yeah. and things yeah like big big um Big M, capital M modernism was yeah very kind of austere and about the volume of space and the light and some of the details and you just it looks austere and it sounds austere until you're there and then it can be really amazingly kind of rich and uh beautiful yeah so what's what we're going to do we're going to talk about um a building every week hopefully one we've seen in person if possible talk about the reason why the building is is built i bought a um architecture history book i must have sold mine from school <laughs> so i got a new one for as a reference i think i might have to do the same uh, thing <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just to refresh your mind a little bit about some things. Go, we'll go over some of the st distinct and unique um, elements of the building just to give people an idea of what's aesthetically exciting about it. Yeah, and then we'll talk about why the building's important, why it's held on for, for people, and then we'll, we'll, we'll also give our opinions of it because um, you know, I guess tearing down giants is always a really helpful thing. Yeah. So um, this is just an introduction, but it's been set up, the list in theory, to make you help you understand a modern architect as in not capital M modern as in the movement, but as um, today's architects and kind of the architects that we grew up with and the education and study we had in the background, um, as opposed to some people who are still strangely classicist, which I'll have to figure out why they are. Yeah. Uh, so I, I warned David beforehand, um, be prepared to kind of just talk a little bit about in this introduction of what you kind of consider modern architecture to be in the beginnings of it. And I, I tip my cap to you a little bit about what I thought, but what do you think? Um, to me, I think it's, it's kind of taking some of the basic principles, like the kind of proportions and things like that, that you kind of study as you get into classical architecture, taking that kind of stripping down a lot of the ornament getting to the base, you know, functionality of the space, um, and then trying to work more with, like you said before, with um, light and uh, expressing structure. And, and it's actually, I don't know, there's a lot more depth to it. It's just, you, it's kind of, you take kind of the study of what you learned in classical and all the other things that came before it, and it's a little bit of a stripping down, but it's also an enriching of other ideas and things that were there. Yeah, it's like getting to the the root of of what all the classical is about when you start to pile on more and more. No, excuse me, knowledge. Um, 
and to make a completely obscure reference, like a, it's like a Mondrian painting where people talk about it. it's all about pure composition. Right. Mondrian s- stripped out the people and he's just left colors and lines. Right. Which are just so it, it's it's about taking out a lot of that what modernists consider flotsam and jetsam of, mm-hmm. of society. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you can even see that when you start to study stuff like uh, Corbusier's Piloti and stuff like that. It's, I mean, if you look at like the Parthenon where they talk about, or the building is all yeah. about the columns and stuff. But if you look at the plan, you look at the elevations of that, their columns are very closely spaced. You don't need that many to hold the structure up. And you can see where Corbusier was kind of taking away, stripping away the unnecessary and just creating you know, essentially what was needed to make the space. Yeah, and we'll talk a lot about Corbusier when we talk about some of his buildings, but um, he was definitely very inspired by classicists. Very had a very complex proportionate system he worked with, and it really was about him seeing principles in that architecture that classical architects didn't and in, in creating what he hoped would be new rules for modernism. And there's a kind of a strong resemblance to the white marble buildings of the Greeks and Romans in his white columned buildings as you're talking. Oh yeah. So yeah, the reason this list, we only have like two classical works on here. Cause I think for me, modernism starts really in the Renaissance. It's a French word rebirth for an Italian movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's really where I think like medieval people are just weird. I don't think we would understand them where they're like, that guy died. Why? Because God wanted it to happen. You're like, that's it's it's very removed from our modern understanding. And in the, in the Renaissance, you see the kind of invention of study and the application of study to problems. And I think that's kind of essentially modern. And as we move forward, all that uh, changes and they become less reliant on classical models. And as new technology comes in in the 19th century, that begins to challenge lessons they thought they learned and so forth and and really leads into big modern movement but i think even today architects operate in that kind of uh spirit of alberti and brunelleschi of let's go study something and learn something and then see if we can't apply it and solve some sort of design problem oh yeah exactly that and i think you had a good point too about the primitive people if you look at buildings like the parthenon they're built for uh, goddesses and things like that and even through like the gothic yeah. movement everything is built for you know it's gothic churches or it's always built for like a god or a goddess and then when you get to the renaissance it's more about almost the aristocracy and you're building you're going back to like housing and like more more usable forms or more identifiable forms with what we would consider architecture now you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're, you're, you're building, when you get to the Renaissance, you start building for, for people right. and not gods. I think it's a great way to look at it. Like, um, It's not a house for the gods. It's not a, a gateway to the gods, the way a Gothic cathedral kind of is. Like The presence of God comes in. But in the beginning, you're building for the rich and the wealthy. Yeah. And the big thing about the capital M modernism movement is one of the big things of their movement towards building for everybody which has really stuck with us today where architects are designing almost every building you go into and apartment buildings and um, all these kind of things that up until maybe the 19th century many architects didn't do anything with right right so it's that kind of but it's still it's that kind of 
focus on designing for a person, which is totally different than classical architecture, which would be Greek or Roman. Right. So this is what I guess we're going to be just exploring. This will probably be a pretty short podcast. We'll be all these little bricks of, of buildings that have kind of gone into a wall, which is the environment that most architects operate in when they're talking, whether they're consciously thinking of it or not. They're all kind of things we share in common, and we may refer to them, or we just kind of understand the language of the forms. Right, and I think it's kind of interesting, too. That I think what you framed out is kind of almost counterintuitive to what we learned in school, where we spent, it's what, two semesters, three semesters doing almost classical renaissance and all the way up to the beginning of the like 19th century in the modern movement. And then we spent one semester doing modern to today. Yeah. Yeah. At Georgia Tech, we had two professors, Betty Dowling and uh, Robert. Oh, what's Rob's last name? Yes. Um, and Betty would teach the classical and the Renaissance stuff. And then Robert would teach the modern stuff. And it's kind of a different break than what we're describing here, where Renaissance and modern kind of fit together. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, God, we did spend a lot of time studying old, old buildings that have nothing to do with uh, modern steel. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, lo a lot of stonework, a lot of a lot of sculpture and, you know, ornament and things like that that we had to really familiarize ourselves with. That then once you get down to the modern movement, kind of strips it all away and says, you know, here's the basic building blocks of how you make great architecture. And it's just it's a very interesting way of studying everything. Yeah, because the, the classical mindset is very different also because it's about proportions and rules and propriety. Right. And so then said modern architecture is really about kind of problem solving and, and probably a fair amount to be fair. And I think some classicists might criticize this. It's about doing something different and unique and sometimes different uniques just bad but i think that's a big uh value in architecture modern architecture oh yeah yeah i think everybody i mean it's everyone tries to strive to get to something where they blend everything that they've learned no matter what style it came from to make something truly unique yeah yeah i think a lot of architects are and a, a lot of clients are uh, suspicious of it are waiting for that opportunity to do something great right um, and, and there just aren't that many opportunities. You know, a lot of times the client is, is pretty well informed about what they want to do and that's going to be what it is. And your job is just to make sure nobody dies. Yeah. Or they have, they come with a preconceived aesthetic that you're trying to fit into and you have to kind of keep plodding along until you actually hit what they're, they were hoping for kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they're not really great at vocalizing. I mean, if they could, if they could, they would do it themselves. That's why they exactly <laughs> figure it out. So, what? Um, so yeah, we're both practicing architects. I, I'm practicing here in Atlanta in my own little practice, and you're in Boston. Yes. Yes, and you're at a yeah. I I work at uh, OMR Architects in Acton. We do we do okay. a lot of uh, school work and uh, high end residential that kind of thing. Okay, I do a lot of small scale residential and commercial interior things, and I've done some some public work. We both went to Georgia Tech for our undergrad, which was a four-year program. Yes. Had to go back for yes. grad school. Yeah. We all, we all kind of figured that out about halfway through, that we need to actually do grad school if, we, if we're if we not in a five-year program yeah. in tech. Yeah. 
So I did my grad school at Georgia Tech, which was a traditional master's program, two years. Um, and both of these are undergrad and our grads. You have classroom classes, like the history classes David was talking right. about. And then studio classes where you're in class for at least nine hours a week. You get three hours credit for it, but you're probably really in class for somewhere to 10 to 20 hours a week. In oh, at least, yeah. Um, and then you went to grad school at the Boston Architecture Society? Architectural College. The Architectural College. I think it started as the Architectural Society. It's a very different program than, than the typical grad school. It is. It's actually a program that when I applied to it, you can go straight for a master's degree with if you didn't have a previous architecture education. And the program was... I think it was five years, but yeah, since yeah. I had already had a previous degree from Georgia Tech, I just transferred in essentially all the credits that I'd done previously and managed to finish right. it in under three years. But it's a yeah. it's a different program because they want you to work full time while you're attending school, right. so that they and they want you to try to cross reference what it is that you're learning. It on the job with what you're learning in the classroom. So it's kind of a unique program. Yeah, it's, it's cool. And I, I actually worked most of the time as an undergrad in grad school in architecture firms and did that a little bit, but it wasn't um, as tied together. And it was, uh, I've had to do a lot of figuring that out too. How does the, the, the training we get in the classroom fit with what we do out in the work world, because I, I think they do fit, but you know, sometimes the the academy is too precious, and sometimes right. the um, profession's kind of dumb. Honestly, it's kind of right. You got to get stuff done and get it out, and sometimes that takes precedent over getting it right. Or um, a lot of guys just uh, forget what it's like to be creative. So yeah, well, that's one of the things I thought was interesting about this school is. There were definitely times in studios and things where you could see that some of the creativity that was fostered so much at like a place like Georgia Tech or any other architectural college across the country where you spend, like you said, a majority of your time, 10 to 20 hours a week doing design work. And this yeah. is you're spending 40 hours a week doing office work, which I imagine for most of these people who are in the school were doing stair details or you know little things here and there that they could actually be taught quickly and be functional at yeah reflected ceiling plans just detail yeah exactly stuff that you could almost walk in and if you know how to use cad drafting software you can start doing it and be 100 percent right right and i thought it was interesting coming into an environment like that where i mean you know what it was like being in school like you would never go into a studio class having spent you know just the hours that you were supposed to spend in class time working on your project, you would have, you would have right. taken an extra, you know, 10 to 20 hours a week and poured over the designs that you were coming up with and really gone over it several times to make it the best it could have been where at this school, it was a little bit, there wasn't the time to kind of do that. And right. I came from a more traditional background. So like, I would present my studio project alongside other people where you could tell I hadn't slept in two to three days and other people were like, Oh, I threw this together last night, which, you know, just the thought process wasn't quite there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I can see like, yeah, people coming more from kind of traditional draftsman backgrounds where they weren't uh, big time designers. Right. Yeah. They knew how to put right. things it, together, but they, they couldn't really, figure it out from a macro level 
essentially. Yeah, that's what I always thought. The the, the over practical people who um, complained they weren't learning enough practical things in school, and you don't learn a whole lot of practical things. You learn barely enough that if you get hired, they can stick you on something and you don't screw it up right. too much. But those big scale design skills are what serve you as you get further down the road and, and you have to do more and more problem solving and you're not just doing wall details for some right right in our grad, grad school we were about half um people who actually had architecture degrees and then half people with other degrees and those the people with other degrees were usually probably had a lot higher sat scores and were a lot more analytical yeah but um and they could come up with great kind of theses for their building if that's the word but um, they could never really quite translate it into built form. Like, e even if they did translate it to a building, it's always kind of looked like a diagram of their idea. Like, that reality of form never, in the poetics of that, never quite got into what they were doing. You know, the, the concept for your design can only do you so good. The design has to stand on its own. As always, um, the four years of undergrad we had was really good for taking ideas and turning them into space and design right or backwards sometimes yeah you saw that a lot where you saw people who could come up with great concepts but then just couldn't quite put it together or they were good at you know little problem solving here and there if they got challenged on a certain area of their projects or something they could figure that out but then couldn't get it to wrap to the whole thing so it was it's yeah it's an interesting process yeah and i think um you and I were pretty good friends in undergrad and got to know each other, um, but we're, we're pretty different designers, or at least we were. I guess it's hard to tell now because we're um, working in a professional world, but I did a lot of right angles and a lot of square things with kind of um, sort of high modernist, mid-century ideas behind them, and you did not. No, I was more the what, deconstructivist type kind of in school pushing the boundaries yeah, of space yeah. in any any way I could. Yeah, I was probably more Rem Coolhouse uh, wannabe, and you were more Eric Owen Moss wannabe or Morphosis Yeah, wannabe. yeah, it's accurate. Yeah, yeah. phenomenology, when I don't know if we'll ever talk about that, might be the word for you, kind of the, the spaces and the shapes you make. Yeah. Like how I was experienced, and um, I was more interested in kind of systems and stuff, so even though we have kind of similar backgrounds that like we have pretty different design aesthetics. So, yes. Well, I think that's enough David for today. So uh, we'll wrap it up and we'll use our, our shared experience and our different experiences to uh, hopefully give people some background on some famous architecture in a way that's not too boring. So our, our first building, and I, I think we're going to go chronologically is going to be the Parthenon. In, that's a good starting point. I think, I think it's a good starting point. Uh, I might try to, if I have time, drive to Nashville to see their uh, recreation of the Parthenon because that's one building neither one of us has been to. Oh, I've been there. My dad actually, yeah, oh, my dad there? actually lived in Nashville for a year and had an apartment that was just on the other oh, side, just on the other side of the park from there. And so it's oh, so you've been in yeah. It's it's interesting too because you see the the Parthenon in real life and it's all the white marble and the one in Nashville is the is it like brown granite or something like that? It's yeah, Tennessee. Yeah, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's different, yeah. and it's not the same it's, scale either. It's like three quarters the scale or something like that. Oh, is it three quarters scale? Scotland's got one that's half done too. So they're, they're kind of Parthenon remakes all over. Yeah. The place, so <laughs> anyway, 
we'll do that when we get back in touch next time. So. Yeah.